Welcome to the Equipping You in Grace podcast, hosted by Dave Jenkins. The Equipping You in Grace podcast is a podcast about helping Christians develop a biblical worldview in a conversational tone about issues inside and outside the church. Now, for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. Welcome back to the Equipping You in Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this podcast. And with me today, I have my friend, Matthew Barrett. Matthew, welcome back to the Equipping You in Grace podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's great to always chat with you. Can you uh, just catch us up on what's new in your life, marriage, ministry, and what are you working on uh, writing project-wise? Yeah, thanks. Uh, yeah, I'm busy writing. I love to write, and uh, I do see it as a, as a ministry to help others, pastors, churchgoers, and sometimes even, like what we're going to talk about today, dip into some academic scholars. So uh, I obviously Canon Covenant Christology uh, is is about to release is releasing um, and I'm excited about that. I'm working on a number of other books that will come out uh, this time next year in 2021, including a book on the Trinity uh, that will be a companion to my previous book on the attributes of God called None Greater. Uh, this book on the Trinity will be called Simply Trinity: The Unmanipulated Father, Son, and Spirit. So I'm excited writing on that and uh, excited for that to come out next year. But right now, I'm uh, really uh, just overjoyed to see Canon Covenant Christology uh, released with IVP and uh, have a chance to talk to you about it. Oh, yeah, it's wonderful to always have you on. Uh, do you want to just tell us about this book, uh, uh, Canon Covenant and Christology, Rethinking Jesus and the Scriptures of Israel? Why did you write it, and how do you hope it'll be received? Yes, you know, this book is uh, a book I hope will be very helpful, especially to evangelical Christians. Uh, I think a lot of times when we think about the Scriptures and how to talk about the scriptures from getting to end, even how to talk about the scriptures or even defend the scriptures in evangelistic or apologetic conversations with others, uh, we oftentimes will appeal to maybe certain proof texts. Uh, you know, Paul, uh, his, his words to Timothy, all scripture is breathed out by God. Of course, is one of the places we go. Peter, uh, where he talks about the, the biblical author being carried along by the Holy Spirit and, and other texts like that. But sometimes when we come to the Gospels, and Jesus in particular, we start to get a little bit nervous because uh, Jesus and the gospel writers, they don't unpack, at least explicitly, the doctrine of scripture for us. They don't always reflect on, uh, in a systematic fashion, on what scripture is. And so sometimes we get a little bit nervous, and frankly, we're not always sure uh, what to make of Jesus and the gospel writers. You know, some who go in, in um, a more radical direction would even start to pit Jesus and the gospel writers over against Peter or Paul epistles. And so I'm, I, I'm coming into that conversation in this book, and I'm trying to uh, argue and show that Jesus and and the gospel writers, actually, they have just as convictional and uh, just as a, a substantial doctrine of Scripture as Paul and Peter and the apostles. It's not as if uh, the, the apostles are inventing something. Uh, but uh, Jesus and the gospel writers, their view of the canon of Scripture as a whole comes out in a very different way. Uh, it comes out when we look at how Jesus understands uh, himself as the fulfillment of the covenant promises God makes in the Old Testament, for example. And it also comes through in the way that we see uh, God's revelation uh, progress all the way from Adam in the book of Genesis to Abraham to Moses to David and ultimately Jesus Christ as he uh, arrives on the scene as, as a last Adam, the second Adam, and fulfills, uh, fulfills the very scriptures that speak of him. And as he does that, his, um, his adherence to those scriptures says volumes about what those scriptures are 
to begin with. And of course, there's, there's much more to say, we can get into it, but uh, uh, for, for some of those reasons, I really wanted to address the way we approach Jesus and the Gospels and perhaps rethink our approach so that uh, we, we don't uh, set Jesus and the Gospel writers over against, say, the epistles, or just assume that they have nothing to say at all. Yeah, that, that's really good. You, you were just touching on kind of this question, so I'll just ask it. Why is Jesus's authoritative interpretation the hermeneutical key to understanding how the mighty acts of God uh, fulfill his covenant promises? Well, there's many ways we could answer that question. I think maybe the key the key word, what you just said, is the word covenant. When we look at the canon uh, of prior to Jesus, the canon that he receives and inherits, um, this, this canon is very much wrapped up in God's revelation of himself uh, through different covenants that we see throughout uh, redemptive history. I, I would argue that we see this immediately as God uh, sets Adam in the garden and gives him certain covenant stipulations. Um, it, it's a, a type of a test, and we learn, of course, later in Scripture that Adam is not acting just for himself, but he is representing us as our covenant head uh, and representative. And the story is tragic, as we all know. Uh, his disobedience then plunges all of us, all of humanity, into sin and corruption and guilt. Uh, but as the story continues, we see God make covenant promises begin in Genesis 3.15. We see that begin to sprout with Abraham as, as God uh, appears and reveals himself to Abraham. And of course, with Moses, what's so interesting about this progression is that as God continues to reveal himself and give his promises of salvation through these covenants, God is very specific about how he is going to fulfill those covenant promises at times. And what we see is that the, the very medium through which he, he does this is through his own word. So he speaks and reveals himself, then he acts to fulfill his covenant promises, and then he doesn't leave it up to us to try and figure out what, what his actions mean, but he follows up and interprets his actions for us. So, you know, you think of something like Sinai, when, when Israel is liberated and they come to Sinai, uh, what does God do? Well, he gives his word to Moses and then to the people, and God's law, his word, essentially becomes the, the constitution of the covenant. It's even kept in a holy place in and next to the Ark of the Covenant uh, because it, these are God's very words that, are, that people are to live by. Well, all that to say, when Jesus comes on the scene, he's not in, in some way just merely adopting, say, the Old Testament canon. He's actually bringing God's covenant promises to fulfillment. In, in a sense, um, everything that's preceded him in the Old Testament uh, from types and shadows, you know, think of uh, the temple or the sacrificial system, and there's, there's so much, right? All of this is pointing forward to the coming of God's promised Messiah who will cut a new covenant by his own blood, fulfill God's covenant word and promises. And in doing so, what we discover is that, well, Christ is the, the fulfillment, but but very much the, the key to, to connecting what we uh, what we see in the Old Testament to what then uh, what then happens with the advent of Christ and then, and then further along, the advent of the Spirit at Pentecost and ultimately the gospel being inscripturated by the apostles in the New Testament writings that we have today. That's a, that's a really good answer. You've you've mentioned the idea of fulfillment uh, several times so far. Why is the idea of fulfillment so important in Matthew and John's gospel? And how does this idea uh, help Christians read the gospels? Well, it is really important. 
important. I'm glad that you mentioned it. Uh, in fact, when we, it's not just Matthew and John, um, though those are the two I focus on. We could look at, I, I could look, if I had space, I could have looked at uh, Mark and Luke, though I suppose the book would have been twice as long. Matt, already my chapters on Matthew and John, I, I felt as if I was just touching the tip of the iceberg. But, but that's because fulfillment is so prevalent. Uh, in Matthew's gospel, it's interesting, isn't it? Matthew's very explicit about it. We sometimes as, um, you know, when, when a new believer, maybe somebody comes to faith for you know, the first time and they trust in Jesus, or maybe we, we are trying to present them with Jesus, we often like John's gospel. There's good reasons for that. John has lots to say about eternal life, but we could also point him to Matthew's gospel. Matthew is uh, sometimes even more straightforward and direct than John. Matthew just comes out and says, you know, Jesus will perform a miracle, or uh, some event will happen in the ministry of Christ, or, or after a teaching, Matthew will just come out and say, uh, by the way, this has happened <laughs> to fulfill the scriptures. And, and sometimes he's even specific. He'll name, he'll identify the Torah, or perhaps a prophet like Isaiah. And the gospel writers love to, to talk about Isaiah. Well, why is he doing this? He's trying to convey who Jesus is, of course, but also what Jesus is doing to bring to fulfillment all of God's covenant promises. Uh, John does it as well, though John doesn't do it in quite the same way. Uh, Matthew's very explicit, very direct. Sometimes John is like that, but oftentimes John, um, he does the same thing, but in a different way. He works through metaphors and imagery, sometimes very colorful imagery. He'll talk about uh, the vine and the branches. Uh, he'll talk about Jesus as the bread of life. Well, all of this, of course, is coming out of the Old Testament. Uh, th this imagery is meant to point us back to the Old Testament. In fact, if we were, a, I suppose, a, a Jewish listener in, in the audience when Jesus is, is teaching a parable or speaking in these metaphorical ways, uh, we would have recognized immediately. I suppose if our parents had taught us the Torah and the prophets, we would have recognized immediately uh, that Jesus, of course, is using uh, this canonical Old Testament, even covenantal language, to say that uh, to, to say much about who he is uh, as one who is the Messiah, the, the very Son of God, bringing these um, the, the hope of Israel fulfillment now is meant to be uh, Israel's hope, his life, death, and resurrection. So I guess all that to say, when we read the Gospels, whether it's Matthew or John or Mark and Luke, uh, we need to, to understand that uh, they are communicating uh, this fulfillment theme in various ways. That's why more of them is so important. But they are all communicating uh, really one thing, that Jesus Christ uh, has come, as Israel hoped long for, has come, and he is bringing God's covenant promises that they knew from the canon. He's bringing those covenant promises to fulfillment in his own person and work. Yeah, that's that's really good. That's why that's why Jesus says, have you, have you not read or you know verily yes. verily i mean when you when you read that when you when you read that in the text what what jesus is saying hey you better pay attention right you better pay attention because yeah. in matthew yeah, that, yeah that's exactly right and, and i should i should also add this uh when we come to statements like that there's so many of them if we're careful readers jesus is not only telling us you know what he's doing in, in bringing the scriptures to fulfillment but he's also telling us what he believes about the scriptures uh, that that these scriptures are authoritative, that they're trustworthy, that they're from his very own father, um, and that they are, are then sufficient for the people of God. He exemplifies that 
in the way he treats the scriptures. Yeah, that's that's really really good. Uh, why why is it so important that our understanding of scriptural authority be rooted in biblical trinitarian Christology, as you said? Yeah, I start to move in this direction towards the end of the book because a majority of the book is is looking in depth at the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, it's it's looking at say the fulfillment theme, for example. But then I also uh, towards the end of the book, I, I also raise the issue that well, it's not just that the canon is being brought to fulfillment through God's covenants in uh, in Christ, but Christology itself actually has much to do with the canon and the covenants. Uh, in other words, that, that may sound complicated, but uh, basically it's a very simple thing I'm after. Basically what I'm saying is who Jesus is uh, matters for what for, for what he says about Scripture, uh, or who Jesus uh, claims to be. If, 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 if it's true that he really is from God himself, if, that he really is the the only begotten Son from the Father, as John likes to say, uh, if he really is the second Adam, as, as Matthew insinuates so often. Well, if this is true, then uh, he brings a certain authority uh, to to his speech when, when he's teaching, and what he says about the Scriptures is something we should definitely pay attention to and believe in. Now, uh, you probably picked this up in what I just said, but uh, it's, it's not just Christology that, that matters here, uh, the, the very person of Jesus, but it's, it's Jesus's Trinitarian origin. Uh, John has, John, this is so important for John, right? From John chapter 1, the very opening of his gospel. You know, we like to skip ahead to John 3.16, for example, or maybe the second half of John 1, where it starts to introduce salvation. But we can't forget that John, first and foremost, roots, grounds what Jesus does and who Jesus is and where he's from. Of course, we know from John 1 and many other, really, scripture as a whole, that uh, there's a Trinitarian origin here, that that Jesus is the second person of the Godhead, eternally begotten by the Father, and then sent, uh, sent by the Father into into salvation history to become incarnate for us and our salvation, as the Nicene Creed says. And in doing so, he tells us, he, he, he starts to hint and sometimes even tells us explicitly about his Trinitarian origin. And then from there, that, that says much then about not only who he is, but then the type of authority he's bringing to his own teaching and to his own assumptions about uh, the canon of the Old Testament. Yeah, that, that's that's really good. Uh, it makes me think of Exodus three fourteen. I am who I am, and what did Jesus say seven times? I am. He says, I I am God. You know, I'm I'm deity. That's exactly right. And, and you think of uh, you know whether it's John eight, John five, John ten. So many of these texts. Uh, there's a reason, right? There's a reason why the religious leaders are so deeply offended, and uh, at times even want to put him to death. They may not understand entirely what Jesus is saying, but they understand enough to know that he is making an outrageous claim to both be from God, from eternity, uh, and also one with God. In John's Gospel, for example, Jesus has a lot to say about his unity uh, with the Father, unity that says much about his divine equality and identity. Yeah, that, that's really good. How do we how do we help evangelicals understand, as you say on page 302, that they possess superior Christological warrant for their view of Scripture than that of their critics? You know, sometimes, uh, especially in the 20th century, uh, in the neo-Orthodox movement, think of the 
figure like Karl Barth or many others that came after him. Sometimes, and to this day, uh, one of the criticisms that we receive is that, well, our doctrine of Scripture is not very theological. Uh, like I, I kind of mentioned at the beginning of, of our conversation, we sometimes, will, in order to explain or defend our doctrine of Scripture, we'll just kind of rattle off a, a Scripture verse and that sort of thing. Many in, say, the neo-Orthodox movement, well, whether their view is right or not, they at least uh, have done a lot of work to try to argue their view theologically. Now, if you know anything about, uh, you know, Karl Barth, they've done that by, with a, a strong focus on Christology. Now, I would argue, and I do argue in my book, that I think there are some weaknesses and problems with uh, the way they allow, with the way they interpret Christology and, and allow it to uh, move them away from, say, the, the full trustworthiness or inerrancy of Scripture. So I give a strong critique of that. But at the same time, I also argue that, well, as evangelicals, we we might need to listen to some criticisms about just our, our method. And so I, I make the case that uh, we don't need to, to shy away from Christ, as if, you know, the neo-Orthodox movement, well, they've made much of Christ and, and uh, Christ being the Word and, and that sort of thing, so we can't have anything to, you know, to do with that. I argue that, you know, actually we have a, a stronger, uh, even a superior Christological warrant for our view of Scripture than, than they think or that we might even know ourselves. Uh, and, and what I argue is that, well, if we if we take who Jesus is seriously, like we just talked about, and if we hold the same view of the canon as Jesus did, we actually have a, a, a Christological warrant for the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture that others who, who appeal to Christology say we can't have. And, and so one of the things I mentioned is that, uh, the, the, well, I guess one critique I have of, of the neo-Orthodox view is, is not that it's Christological, but that it's actually not Christological enough, which might sound ironic, uh, and I'm sure will would infuriate some of them. But uh, I argue, well, we, we can't we can't actually separate say, who Jesus is from what he says. Uh, there tends to be that that tendency uh, on the other uh, in their camp to to say, well, you know, Jesus is the word, but uh, Scripture only becomes the word, and it, it certainly you know isn't inerrant. Well, I, I argue that uh, well, if we have this Christological warrant, then uh, as soon as Jesus opens his mouth, uh, Scripture uh, itself, uh, well, we could say Scripture itself becomes Christological in every way and trustworthy and reliable in every way. Uh, and uh, the very words that we have in the Scripture, if we look at, say, the New Testament, well, these are these are Jesus' words and his teachings. Uh, the, the gospel itself, really, has been inscripturated for us. So the point is, we, we don't need to set up a, a dichotomy and bifurcate and divorce uh, the, the, the person of Jesus uh, from from the scriptures. The, these two go hand in hand. And yes, we need to distinguish between them, uh, but they are meant to be held together. I think what you just said, held together, is so important because that's what they do. They they separate it. The the, the view that you just explained, they separate the two. Who who is Jesus from from what Jesus has said? Yes, and, and I really the the last chapter of my book dives into this this issue head first. So you know, if listeners want to to skip ahead, uh, they may be interested in that chapter. But I basically argue there that uh, you know that when we argue, say, for the inerrancy of Scripture, um, Jesus is uh, who he is and what he has done is is not a barrier for our view of inerrancy. It's actually a very strong support. And, and so I think we can. 
can honestly say and maybe even have a conversation with, say, an Armenian Orthodox friends and, and say to them, do you believe what Jesus himself says, that not only who he is, uh, that, that he himself is the word of God, but that the words that he speaks are also the words of God and, and the words that he then gives to his apostles, both himself and then uh, later through the Holy Spirit, those two are the very words of Christ given for us and our salvation and, and for the church. I think there's a connection there that we don't have to be embarrassed about, that we can, we, we don't have to say, well, either Christ is the word or scripture is the word, that we can say, well, Christ and the scriptures are the word. It, they may be the word in a different sense, but we don't need to divorce those to one another or set them over against each other. That's that's really a good answer. What, what does it look like to situate our doctrine of inerrancy within the structure of divine revelation itself? Yeah, I would encourage evangelical Christians today to try to situate our, our doctrine of inerrancy uh, within a more organic, even broader view of, of the whole canon. Sometimes when we approach inerrancy, we, we kind of come at it as if, well, we have to somehow prove those difficult, troublesome texts to be true, you know, the, the difficult Bible passages. And uh, we don't, maybe it's unintentional, but sometimes when we do this, we we can come off as rationalists, as if, you know, if we can't prove that text true, well, then the whole faith crumbles and we have to, you know, reject the trustworthiness of the Bible and so on. I argue that we should, we should not, not that historical investigation and, you know, debate over specific text, not that that's unimportant, but I argue that on the whole, our approach to the trustworthiness of Scripture can be far more organic. If we understand who God is, if we understand how He has revealed Himself through His covenants in a way that is tied to the canon itself, His very speech being the interpretation of those covenants and, and therefore authoritative for, for the people of God, for how they are to live and how they are to live by the Scriptures. You think of David, for example, in the Psalms and how much he has to say about that. Well, if we if we understand uh, the trustworthiness of Scripture in terms of the whole canon, and, and ultimately, in light of Christ himself, well, that's a very different approach, and one that I think uh, maybe gives us a, a wider foundation. You think of Christ, for example. The very fact that Christ comes on the scene and fulfills God's covenant promises, well, that itself is one of the strongest proofs we have that God's word has proven true, uh, that it's trustworthy because he's come through on his promise. He he hasn't he he hasn't failed to do so of course that those what Christ has done is then you know given to us in the scriptures but uh, it's it's ultimately it comes back to the very gospel itself and I'm going to argue this in, a, in, a, in another book uh, in, in the next year or two but ultimately it's then you know comes back to the, to the very character of God God is so all that to say I think as as Christians as evangelicals especially if you're a reformed Christian out there uh, you, you don't always have to just limit yourself to say a certain proof text or you no know, trying to, you know, prove or disprove, you know, one specific argument. Uh, you can look to how God has worked across all of us uh, to bring his promises to, ful to fulfillment in his son and what that ultimately says about his word uh, being true, coming true, and, and being reliable. Uh, I think when we look at Christ in the gospel, in the gospel itself, we have every confidence and reassurance that we can trust this God. That's a, that's a really important thing because 
as you just articulated so well, the whole idea of fulfillment is is grounded in the character of God. And and so God has spoken and so we can trust him and we can trust therefore we can trust him when we when we read about his word because he's revealed his character, as you've articulated so well, that testifies to his plan and to the person and work Christ. So I mean all of that is just awesome to me. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, Matthew, where can people go to find out more about your work online, on social media, or otherwise? Yes, well, uh, the book, Canon and Covenant Christology, it's, uh, people will recognize it by its cover. It's it's a silver cover because it's published in that uh, series edited by D.A. Carson, New Studies in Biblical Theology, which is published by IVP. And so I would say go on to Amazon and, and please buy a, a billion copies, <laughs> both for, for your church, for your pastor. Uh, for yourself, for your friends. Um, but no, really, seriously, you can you can go on the IVP's website or go on to Amazon. You'll find a book there. Uh, you can also, a little plug here, you can, can I, I'm really tweeting through the book in many ways. I'm going to be doing that over the next month, releases. In a couple of weeks, I'm going to be tweeting through parts of the book. You can uh, go on to at Matt and Barrett and uh, follow follow the, the, the book and some of the quotes and its table of contents with me. And then, and then of course, and, uh, I always love to mention Credo Magazine. Uh, you can go to credomag.com. Uh, there I will be releasing a couple of podcasts on, from the Credo Podcast. Uh, a couple of podcasts which you can subscribe to. And I'll be releasing a couple of podcasts on the book itself. Uh, talking about some of the things we talked about, but even more uh, depth. Uh, and uh, you, you'll also find there interviews and conversations and blog posts. And then also the magazine itself, issues of the magazine. Uh, on scripture, but also on all different doctrines of the Christian faith. So please come join us, uh, join that conversation and, and uh, dig into many of the resources on Credo. Well, as always, I have to say, I, I love your podcast. I, I think I haven't missed an episode yet. So that says something. I, I, I really enjoy how, how well done it is. It's uh, very thoughtful. It's it's deep, but it's not over the top. It, it's really good. And I would just encourage our, our listeners to subscribe to Credo Magazine, to go to to uh, Credo Magazine and and check out what uh, Matt and the team put out there. They they consistently put out helpful stuff. So I would just encourage our listeners, um, if you're listening, go head over uh, to Google, type in uh, Credo Mag and uh, Magazine, and you'll you'll be able to find it and uh, enjoy. Well, uh, Matthew, I, I so appreciate the time that you've given to me today. I know that you're a very busy guy, and I just uh, I appreciate the work that you do. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on and. Uh... I'll I'll look forward to next time. That sounds great, brother. Have a great day. You too. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Equipping You and Grace podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, rate us on the app, and share this with your friends and family on social media. If you want to find us on social media, you can find us on Twitter at Servants of Grace on Instagram at Servants of Grace, or by searching at Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this episode and many others like it on the front page of our website, servantsofgrace.org.